Good morning. Come with me. Uh, be filled with the word of God. Turn to Psalm 119. Uh, if you have the black Bibles with you, it's on page 112. I will be 512. Thank you, Art. I'm glad you, you're listening. Page 512, please. Um, reading from verse 25 through 32. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told, I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I see your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not put, be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. The word of God. Amen. So my name is Ryan Phelps. I serve here as lead pastor at Grace Point. Uh, we have been in a series uh, for the last couple of weeks, a, sh- a short series for our, for our summer s- uh, season called Six Questions Christians Ask. I try not to say that too many times. It's impossible to say, but that's what it's called. Six Questions Christians Ask. We've been working through questions that Christians sometimes have a hard time answering for themselves, for other people, friends, family, co-workers, people who don't know Jesus. So we're working through those one by one. We've hit on suffering. We've hit on why come to church. And this morning we come to one that's pretty common, but it's important that we consistently go back to, can I really trust the Bible? Can I really trust the Bible? So let's pray before we go to the Word together. Thanks, Jesus. You have given us all things in your name, by your blood, And now we stand under your cover. We know that you long for us to learn from you. And so I pray that. And I pray that for people who may not know you this morning, who are not close to faith. They don't buy into any of this stuff. God, I pray for them. Their hearts would be open and that they would see you as you are. God, be with us either way by the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is becoming increasingly difficult to trust the Bible. I think that's true. It's becoming increasingly uh, difficult to to call the Bible trustworthy, to say that it's something that we can trust and trust our lives to. And if it's not trustworthy, then it's not authoritative. It may be historically important. It may be literarily important. But it's not religiously important. And and what I mean is that it's not something covers you, that that gets to you, that that gets inside of you, that changes you, that guides you, that guards you. On the one hand, many people say reflexively that the Bible can't possibly be true. It's a copy of a copy of a copy. It was written by fallible men with agendas. Talk about agendas. The, The church had an agenda at the beginning when they gathered all these books. They kept out the ones that they didn't want and they kept the ones that they did. 
Just read the Bible itself. It's inherently immoral. It propagates the wrong ideas about sexuality and women and most of all, salvation. The Bible cannot be trusted, many people say. But like I said, the series is actually for Christians at some level because we are beginning to have a hard time with this. People who have believed the book and believe on Jesus are starting to distrust the book. Younger generations especially have a love-hate relationship with the scriptures. They appreciate the Bible, even love it to some degree for its teachings about Jesus and justice and love. But those dicier parts, the ones that talk about homosexuality and hell, those paragraphs that seem to say that there's really one pathway to God, those are harder to get behind, and so many Christians today are expressing some doubt, some fear. I can't tell my friends I believe this stuff. Goodness, I don't know if I can believe this stuff. Christians, people who are not Christians, are asking more and more, can I really trust the Bible? It's an important question. And it's important for this reason, because it's really an all-or-nothing book. The way it presents itself is, You either take it all or you take none of it. You believe it as God's word or it's not. It is the word, the Bible says, that founds the body of Christ. It is the word that gives life and guidance to the church. It is the word that transmits the message of salvation, the gospel, to a needy world. That's why Jesus himself said, the word, the scriptures, cannot be broken. And so you really can't sit on the fence with this question. And you can't sit on the sidelines, though, either. This is an important question. You can't just dismiss it anymore. There's too much research, scholarship that's gone into this to say, listen, it's possible this thing really is trustworthy. You can't sit on the sidelines and say, I cannot believe there's a God who has spoken into this universe. If there's a God at all, he could speak to our lives, into our lives. We ask this question, hopefully with great integrity. Can we, can I trust the Bible? And I think that word trust is an important one. It's it's an important one. It's not mainly important that you like the Bible or that you find it interesting. The most important thing is whether or not you trust it. Whether or not you can make it the authority of your life. But if if you think about trust, trust is not just something that you just do that easily. Sure, you might sit on a chair, and then sitting on the chair, you're trusting it. You do that pretty easily, but if you think about it, you had to learn how to do that. You had to look at it and go, you know what? That chair is worth sitting in, and I believe that it's going to hold me up. Trust is something that's developed. It's a journey you go to. I want to walk on that journey with you this morning. You have to want it, believe it, and then trust it. Let me give you an illustration. So one of the greatest movies of all time is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Say that with truth. That's true. Two righteous dudes. They need to pass their history final, right? And so what do they do? They get themselves a time machine. I'm not going to fill in the gaps. They just get it somehow. It's a, a telephone booth time machine. And what do they do to pass the history, their history panel? They go kidnap historical figures from the past and bring them to the future, right? It's pretty amazing. Awesome movie. 
So who do they go get? What's one of the first historical figures they get? Napoleon. Maybe the greatest general ever, Napoleon. And they bring him to, you know, like 1980s America. And where does he go? To a water park. Right? If you've ever seen this movie, they take Napoleon to a water park. And Napoleon, of course, has never seen a water slide, let alone used one. But as he looks, he sees something amazing as he's speaking French and stuff. He says, I, I want to do that. I think I want to do it. And so he climbs high up to this water slide and he looks down that hole. He says, this is good. He's ascending to the idea. He's looking at it. He's saying, I want that. And he sees other kids going down screaming. And he says, I think I can believe that this thing is not going to kill me. And then he trusts it by shooting down it. Ascend, believe, trust. When he finally did, he launched out the other end. It's hilarious. He loved it. Of course, Napoleon, the greatest French general, would love a water slide. It's true. The psalmist says, with my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The Bible's claim is not simply that it is just another thing to trust. It's not a chair. It's not a water slide. The Bible claims that it is the thing that will bring light to your eyes, peace to your soul, and joy to your heart. You will delight in it as much as all riches. Can we believe that? That's the question. We've got to take the journey very quickly this morning. Ascend, believe, trust. Ascend, believe, trust. Those are the three points this morning. One, ascend to the Bible. In other words, you must come to see that the Bible is something you should want to trust. The Bible is something that you should want to trust. So it's pretty interesting. We heard a lecture a couple of weeks ago, my, uh, a friend and I, about the nature of truth and our relationship to it in the world and how it's changed over the, the millenniums. Especially in the last 300 years, you've seen a shift. You've seen a a divergence away from relating to truth in the ways that they have in centuries past. Truth today is something that has become fluid, malleable. And the, the word that philosophers would use is subjective. There is no grounding ultimate truth beneath anything. In other words, truth is what you make of it. Truth is what we decide for ourselves. And this isn't the case with physical things, of course. We believe physical things. We believe the chair is real. When we sit on it, we are going to be held up. But what about the things we cannot see, the things that we cannot touch, like morality and ethics? We've said this about truth, this culture. There is no objective standard. Therefore, truth is what I make of it. In this world, I can do whatever I want, and I can't tell you what to do either. Now, of course, Christianity's relationship to the truth is quite different from this. Psalm 119, 160 says this, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. That is very different from the subjective idea of truth that we have today. 
God's truth is the truth. And it stands forever. The ultimate truth resides with him in him. And because of this, it is the truth that must guide and shape the world that we relate to. In other words, there is an outside standard for us. I heard a pastor give this illustration. If you're driving down the middle of a road and and right in the middle of the road is a big tree, a big fat tree, right in the middle of Main Street. Well, you don't look at that and say, you know what? I don't believe that tree is there. It can't be. There wouldn't be a tree in the middle of Main Street, so I'm just going to go right through it. No, we know well enough that we've got to go around that tree. That objective truth is doing something. It's telling us something. We are responding to it. What Christianity says is that there is far more cohesion between the physical and the spiritual than many believe. Just as that tree sets a physical standard, there's no going through it. There exists a spiritual realm with a moral standard, an objective standard, a standard by which we are judged, a standard by which the world is to order itself. The Apostle James calls this the perfect Law, the perfect law. This is the truth come from God. Now, I want to make two connections as we talk about ascending to the truth that the word is good. Whether you are a Christian or not, I'd like to say, and I I think that you already believe this at some level. Whether you are a Christian or not, you already believe this to some degree. And the second thing is that I think that what the Bible teaches is something that we want to be true. We already believe it, and we want it even more. So first, think about the statement that we've been talking about. There is no truth except the truth that I make for myself. There is no universal truth. The Bible cannot tell me what to do. Truth is what you make of it. What have you just done by saying that? When you've said there is no universal truth, you've offered a universal truth. By saying there is no universal truth, you've offered up something that sounds a lot like universal truth. You believe that deep down. There has to be something true. Second, you already believe in some moral universal truths. There are some things that everyone believes are wrong, that we even use the word evil for, even if you are not a Christian. Genocide, murder, child abuse. No one looks at those things and shrugs their shoulders and says, survival of the fittest. Listen, Hitler was just doing what he thought was right to him. I can't tell him if he was right or wrong. Maybe you've seen the picture of the little boy that's been flying through social media. A little boy in Syria, bloodied, covered in soot from a building that he'd been pulled out of that had been bombed. We don't look at that and... We don't look at that with indifference. We look at that with great care. And something inside of us says, that is not okay. That is not how the world is supposed to be. How can we say that? How can we say that anything is wrong because we have a universal standard, a perfect law? And if you say that the standard comes from God, I don't think it's that much of a stretch to say that this law might go further and deeper than we realize. Now, I, I think that we need to ascend to this truth because 
we should want it to be true also. It's not just that we believe it now at some level. We should want it to be true. Now, the, the Bible is not going to, if you don't believe the Bible, there's going to be some parts that are going to rub you the wrong way for sure. But if you really, with integrity, look at it, if you read its message, its overall purpose, its trajectory, I think you will see things that align with your own worldview. The Bible gives credence to the idea that love is the most important thing in the world. The Bible says that the human race should live at harmony with one another. The Bible says that justice, true justice, is possible. The Bible points to a time and a place where there will be no suffering, no sadness. That is something that I think everyone can get behind, no matter who you are. We want that to be true. Here's another thing that we want to be true. We want purpose. We want purpose. And the, the Bible gives you purpose because it puts you in to the story. You are not just on the outside looking in. You are inside of it. The Bible does not just tell you the way things are, but it tells you who you are in this world. You are part of a larger plan, a grander narrative. You were created to know God and follow his commands. Psalm 119.73 says this, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Listen to those two phrases together. You have made me, now make me learn about you. Make me learn your commandments. We were designed and created by the, by the God of the universe, but not just to do nothing. The psalmist says that we were meant to live our lives in alignment with him. We were made to walk hand in hand with him, stride by stride with him. Our created purpose is to find our purpose in him, to live inside of his life. And this means, of course, the greatest thing. The Bible connects us to God. Even those who are atheists, many of whom I speak with, they say, I, I wish there was a God. I wish there was some creator out there that loved me. Psalm 119.10 says something amazing. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. The Bible says that if you want a relationship with God, if you want a connection with the eternal, the infinite, you must seek him in his revealed word. Understand that the Bible teaches that we can only see part of God through his creation. We, can, we know that he's there. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. We know that he exists based on the amazing work of his creation. But it only goes so far. We need much more. We need something more to tell us more about him. That is what the word is for. Theologians call the Bible the special revelation of God. It is him coming down, speaking to us. His story, his life, his commands, his plan. The Bible is God's word about himself and how we can know him. It is our primary avenue to knowing him, and that is something my heart needs and wants to be true, to be able to connect with the God of the universe. 
I took my first mission trip when I was 20 down to the borders of Mexico, a border town. And I was there with some great people, but the work was really hard. It was really hot. The situation in the town was really tough to see, desperate poverty, brokenness. So by the end of the week, we were, you know, young. There were some high schoolers. I was one of the older people at 20. We were tired. We were broken. We were really feeling lonely. Now, our primary leader, he was an older guy. He gathered us, I think on Thursday. We were supposed to leave on Saturday. But he gathered us on a Thursday night, and he, and he said, listen, before I, before I left, before we left, I had each of your families write a letter to you to encourage you, to remind you that you are not alone, that you are loved. It was an amazing thing to hear him say that. And we each took our letter and we kind of went off on our own. And I opened mine and it was from my new fiance, who is now my wife. And I wept. It was a simple word of encouragement and connection. She loved me. She was praying for me. But at that moment, it meant everything. Now, the the leader could have handed out pictures of our families. Here are some pictures of your loved ones. These will console you. It would have been nice, but not enough. There's something different, something special about the letter, the words. There was life behind those words, vitality, truth. The Bible is God's letter to a people who are lost, worn down, broken, searching. It is him saying to you, I am here. And Jesus Christ, you are mine, and you are loved. That is something we should all want to be true. Two, believe. You must believe the Bible. In other words, you must believe that what you have in that book, in those 66 books, is really the word of God. It's a stretch. You must believe that what you have is the word of God. Now, I just want to talk through three simple things. I, 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 I had to cut so much out of this section. The sermon was going to be like three hours long. It was going to be a lecture. I, I can't do it. I won't do it to you. So just three things. No, there's so much more out there that we can cover with this. It is an, an amazing thing how much scholarship has been amassed to support the believability of the Bible. Let me just give you three things, just as I would say, to put some pebbles in your shoes. First, the biblical account, the stories are historically reliable. Now, okay, we can't talk about the whole Bible. Can't do it. So we're just going to talk about the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the beginning of the New Testament. The, 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 the stories about Jesus Christ, the account of Jesus. Now, the common argument against the trustworthiness of the, the Gospels is that the disciples could have easily made up the stories, right? What do we have? We just have something that's made up. They wrote down what they thought was going to help them out was going to help their cause out. How can we be sure that what they said, what they wrote down, really happened? Well, the answer is is pretty simple. The Gospels are too early. The, the, The versions that we have, the manuscripts we have, were written far too early to have been made up. We think that the Gospels were written, all of them, within a generation of their having been written down 25 years after Jesus was killed, after he was raised from the dead, and all the way to 90 years later. 
Because they were written so soon after their stories were written, they could have been debunked. They were written. They could have, anyone could have come up to them and said, wait a minute, I was there. I know what happened, and that did not happen. You could not have changed it because people could have come in and said, listen, I was there. Whenever you see a, a, the name of someone in the, in the Gospels, they didn't have to write down the names. Whenever you, write it, whenever you saw a name written down, one scholar says that it was almost like a footnote we see today. It was almost like them saying, especially the obscure names, that person was there. They lived the life. They saw it. They experienced it. If you have any questions, if you want to confirm this, go talk to them. If you want to verify this, just go ask that person. Christianity had become a problem in the early world. It would have been a good thing for the Romans to put that faith down, especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There would have been huge gain if they could just have disproved that. Just disproved the writing down of this thing, this this word. They probably just made it up. No, Paul says, go ask anyone. There were hundreds of witnesses to Jesus Christ. Okay, two, the books and the translations we have are historically reliable. The books and the translations that we have are historically reliable. Reliable. Probably the, the most common accusation against the Bible is this. It's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. In other words, all that copying, there's no way that we could, have, we could really have what they had back then. Okay, so fine. Maybe what happened was true back then. But how can we know what really happened? The translations that we have, the Bibles that we have, they cannot be accurate. And honestly, there's some truth to that. We do have copies of copies of copies. Martin Ehrman, a New New Testament scholar, he's not a Christian. He says that there are over 400,000 errors that you can point to to undermine the trustworthiness of Scripture. And it's right, 400,000. But you need to know something about that. You can't just stop at the the surface level. You've got to go a little bit deeper. Now, we do not have the original writings, right? We do not have the original Luke, the original Romans, the original Revelation. We don't have those. Those are long since gone, but we have copies. We have copies of those works, and copies can be wrong, of course. So if you have just one copy of a letter, it's hard to know if that copy is true or not, right? If you just have one, it's like, well, who knows if it's, if it's true or not? But what if you have a lot of them? What if you have a lot that have come from different places and different times? Well, then you can start to bring them together and compare them. So you have five copies of the book of Ephesians from a few years apart, from different places throughout the ancient Near East. And you begin to compare them, these Greek manuscripts. You, you do it with painstaking detail. And you point out the contradictions. You you point out the places where they align. What happens is that not that the picture gets muddied, but the picture becomes clearer. The copies come together and they show what is really there, what was really there. And you can be reasonably certain at the end that what you have is close to the original. 
Now, it matters how many copies you have. If, if you have just one or two, that's not good. Five is better. Ten or 25 is even better than that. That's amazing. How many New Testament Greek manuscripts do we have? 5,700. From different places, different times. And you bring these together and you start to compare them. And I think that Bart Ehrman also includes all of the manuscripts that we have that are not in Greek, which amasses to 25,000. And once you start comparing all these, you start to amass the errors. And that's where you get the number 400,000. But that is a good thing because it teaches us and shows us how many manuscripts there are and that we can know that what we have is so accurate. There is one figure that says that, we, that what we have in our Bibles today is 97% accurate, and it is probably closer to 99%. This is what Bart Ehrman says. Again, he, his whole life has been to try to undermine the trustworthiness, the authority of the Bible. And this is something that he said. Listen, the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by the textual variance, that's the errors, in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Hear that again. The essential Christian beliefs are not affected by the textual variance. The Bible that you have in your laps, that is what they were reading. That's what they were writing in the ancient Near East, the time of Jesus. We're going to end with Jesus. Jesus said and believed the Bible was historically reliable and believable. Jesus believed the Bible himself. Now, this is circular reasoning. Circular reasoning, I admit that. We learn from Jesus in the Bible that the Bible is historically accurate. So i just ask you to do two things. Maybe take those first two. Maybe say, okay, maybe there's some truth to that. Walk it over to where Jesus is. And this guy that you probably like, that you probably admire, maybe you even love him, say, can I trust him? Because he believed the Bible. I'm just going to read this section from Kevin DeYoung's book called Taking God at His Word. Very powerful. Jesus' mission was to fulfill Scripture, and his teachings always upheld Scripture. He never disrespected, never disregarded, never disagreed with a single text of Scripture. He affirmed every bit of law, prophecy, narrative, and poetry. He shuddered to think of anyone ever violating, ignoring, or rejecting Scripture. Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture, down to the sentences, to the phrases, to the words, to the smallest letter, to the tiniest mark. He accepted the chronology, the miracles, the authorial ascriptions as giving the straightforward facts of history. He believed in keeping the spirit of the law without ever minimizing the letter of the law. He affirmed the human authorship of Scripture while at the same time bearing witness to the ultimate divine authorship of the Scriptures. Jesus treated the Bible as a necessary word, a sufficient word, a clear word, and a final word, the final word. It was never acceptable in his mind to contradict Scripture or stand above Scripture. He believed the Bible was all true, all edifying, all important, and all about him. He believed absolutely that the Bible was from God and was absolutely free from error. Jesus submitted his will to the Scriptures, committed his brain to study the Scriptures, 
And he humbled his heart to obey the Scriptures. In summary, it is impossible to revere the Scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. The Lord Jesus, God's Son, and our Savior believed his Bible was the Word of God down to the tiniest speck. And that nothing in all those specks and in all those books in his Bible could ever be broken. Can you believe the Bible? Yeah. Last point. Trust the Bible. Trust the Bible. In other words, you must lean on it and let it change your life. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Continue in what you have firmly believed. This is what we're talking about. From assent to, I want to believe it, to trusting it, to firmly believing that what we have is the Word of God, to continuing in it. In other words, to trusting it, to trusting your life to it, to let it, let, to lean on it, to let it hold you, sustain you, change you. Here's an example. So my daughter, she took up indoor rock climbing this summer. We went to camp and there was this indoor rock climbing facility and she really took to it. She loved it. She went up over and over and over again. Every route they had, it didn't matter. She tried it. What's amazing though is that she learned how to come down. She, turned, she learned, in other words, how to repel. Now she tried this like a year ago and it was terrible. She got up, she could climb, but she would not let it bring her down. She would not let that person who was on belay let her down. But this time she did. It was that first time where she leaned back. She let the rope carry her weight. She let the person down below her bring her down slowly. She got better and better at it. She did it more and more and more and loved it more and more and more. I think the trusting trusting the word is like that. It is to lean on it. It is to give your weight to it. It is to let the word hold you and sustain you, to be your guide. 2 Timothy 3, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you Learn that we want the word to be true. We believe the word to be true. And we must trust the word to be true. Jeff Arthur said last week that we have to put our practices in. We have to practice doing the will of God before we know the will of God. The same thing here. We will not truly live out what the Bible has for us unless we put our weight onto it. Unless we allow it to be the authority over our Lives. It must be our perfect law, our objective standard, our guide. It must teach us salvation. So how do you know that you're trusting the Bible? How do you know it? How do you know that you have let your weight down on to it, let it hold you up? James says that you will treat the Bible and see it as a mirror on your life. It will continuously be reminding you of who you are. This is what James says. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. So you hear it, you don't do it. You look at your face like it's natural. 
He looks at himself and goes away. But what happens? He forgets instantly what he is like, what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, remember the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You don't just let the word be out there. You don't just believe it. Sure, I believe the Bible to be true. No, you put your weight on it. You put it into action. You grow into the person Christ wants you to become. That's how you know you are trusting the word. You know that you're trusting the word when you let it operate on you. When you let it operate on you. The author of Hebrews says this about the Bible. The word of God is active and alive, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, the author of Hebrews was not thinking about surgery, but this is what it reminds me of. The Bible gets down deep into us if we allow it. Yes, it judges us. Yes, it finds the sin, but it cuts it out. It removes it. It cleanses us and heals us. You know you are trusting the word when you allow this to happen. When you allow it to shed light on the darkest areas of your life. When you let the word penetrate and undercut your deepest idols. Tim Keller says that when you are meditating on the word, what you're doing is essentially allowing the Bible to come up and grab you by the neck and change you. Are you letting the word do that? You know you're trusting the word finally when it is a joy to read it. When you simply love it. I had uh, Gil read Psalm 119.25. I'm going to read it again. It's an amazing thing to me. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Just feel his passion. Hear his passion. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. So strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. And listen, let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I love that imagery. I will run in the way of your commandments. That is not some stodgy Bible professor sitting up locked up in a dark library, pouring over every tiny word. This is a person enraptured by the overflow of God's word into their heart. They are running in an open field in the word, in the given word of God. I think this may be our main obstacle. We see the Bible as boring. We see it as too difficult. And I say, we must find it joyful. How do you do that? Maybe the main way is stop seeing yourself at the center of it. Stop seeing it as something that you must do, something that you go to read about someone else. The Bible is not really about us. We are part of the story, but it is not really about us. It is about him. You will find joy in in the word when you read it and know that it is about him. 
In Luke 24, the disciples, or a couple of the disciples were walking on the Emmaus Road. They didn't know that Jesus was alive, but he meets them. They don't see him, but he's there. And he begins to talk to them. And at some point, he starts to teach them the whole Bible again. But he says, listen, now you have a new lens, and that lens is Jesus, and this is how it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. We cannot see the Bible as the thing reserved for scholars and pastors and people with lots of time. This book, brothers and sisters, is a letter from God about his glorious son to you. It is about his coming and living and dying and rising. And we are meant to drink of it. As as, uh, Gil opened up his scripture reading, to eat of it, to be filled. So I was at camp one summer when I was a teenager. And we had these great, really godly leaders. And they didn't really make sense to me. They lived lives in a way that I I didn't really understand. Christianity was just something that was part of your life, not your whole life. And watching them, they, 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 they live their lives differently. And there was one story that sticks out of my mind. We were with them. We had gone out to the beach, the Oregon coast. We're just hanging out. And, and these guys were really out loud, gregarious evangelists. They would talk to anyone about Jesus, anyone who would listen to them. And as we're hanging out, this guy pulls up to park and just to get out and look at the ocean. And you could tell this guy was on some sort of road trip because his car was packed to the gills. So these leaders, like they would usually do, ran up to this guy, talked to him, and tell him about Jesus. And we watched with amazement, like, what are these guys doing? Are they crazy? And then they came back and we said, what did you talk to him about? And they had these sorrowful expressions on their faces. And they said, we can't believe it. He has been on the road for six months and he doesn't have a Bible. I cannot imagine that. So we gave him one of ours. That made no sense to me back then. Who cares? Why do you need a Bible? When you have let the word of life hold you, when you have trusted God and his word spoken into your life, when you have heeded it, you cannot imagine your life without it. May the word be like that for you. May it be like that for this church. Let's pray. God, thanks for your mercy. You have been merciful. You could have left us. We sin, and you could have said no to a relationship, but you did not. You loved us and you said, I will save my people. And you were merciful in giving us your word, in speaking into the universe through your disciples, your prophets, through your servants. You have given us your testimony about yourself. And you have shown us, you have revealed to us the main thing that we are lost apart from Jesus Christ. We are lost apart from his dying and rising. We are lost apart from trusting in him. 
God, thank you. You are merciful to us. Now may we live that out. May we not leave our Bibles in our cars. May we not leave them at home. May we not lose them because we don't ever think about them. May we hold them close. May we read them diligently, passionately, joyfully so that we may have a relationship with you, so that you may be glorified, so that the world may know that you are here, that you have spoken, and that you love us. God, we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit. Amen.